Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Kevin, you know what I know about you? What? You're an amazing mom. <laughs> <laughs> so you are going to want to hear this. Prep Dish is going to save you so much time because it's a meal planning service. Every week you get an email with a grocery list and a prep ahead list and then all your meals are ready for the week. You're right. So then I can take the time that I would have spent, I don't know, say watching football and instead I can start preparing meals for the next week and people will say, mom. <laughs> Super mom. Super mom. <laughs> this is great because I have such a crazy schedule. This is a big time saver for me. It is. Preptish is a healthy subscription-based meal planning service. When you sign up, you get that email every week with everything you need to know, your grocery list, your instructions for prepping your meals ahead of time. After just like one or two or three hours of prep time on the weekend, all your meals are ready for the week. Remember that delicious lasagna we had where the noodles were actually zucchini? That was so good for me. It was good for you. And delicious. And delicious. And it only took a few minutes because I had prepped everything in advance. Is and that why they call it prep dish? That's why they call it prep dish. They're smart there. They are smart. So just for our listeners, Allison at Prep Dish, who is the chef nutritionist who plans all of these recipes. Allison! Is offering a special deal. Her name is true. Go to prepdish.com slash stories for this deal. Again, that is preptish.com slash stories. Stories. And you'll get your first two weeks for free. It's a no-brainer. It's like having a personal meal planner, except it's cheap. You don't have to be rich to do it. And you get to be a super mom, right? Right. So go to preptish.com slash stories for this great deal. Save time, eat well. It's all good. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about other podcasts and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime. And this week, updates in the serial season two case and a discussion of a case that changed the way we think about crime and ourselves. We'll talk about a documentary that looks at the murder of Kitty Genovese and the alleged bystanders who watched her die and did nothing. So joining me right now is the host of These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast, my true crime co-author, real-life husband, and my favorite apathetic bystander, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Reporting for duty, Rebecca. Also joining us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed PI, certified cat lady, and hater of the word moist, Laura Bricker. <laughs> Hello, Laura. Hello. Thanks to all uh, my fellow haters out on Twitter who gave me some support this week. <laughs> I'm not alone. You're not alone. And finally, we're also talking with our least agreeable but probably most talented panelist, the crime and noir novelist, Toby Ball. Good evening, Toby. Good evening. Now, Toby, um, it's been a while and That's we haven't wrong. asked you to do this, you know, for like a month or so. But I think it's time. Have you been paying attention to any of the items that our listeners have purchased using the Amazon link at crimewriterson.com? I have not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I sent you a list today, so can you just pick a couple and uh, highlight them for us, please? Yeah, I'm just going to uh, I'm going to spin the wheel and see what comes up. <laughs> Random pinwheel of Amazon items. Here we go. All right. All right. So this is from the automotive section. Okay. Zone Tech, quote, baby up on this bitch end quote <laughs> vehicle safety sticker wow. premium quality convenient reflective baby up on this bitch vehicle safety funny sign what does that keeping you safe wow. from 
<laughs> I mostly like the fact that it's convenient. Very convenient. <laughs> Baby up on this bitch. Antiviral herbal lip ointment for cold sore outbreak. Prevention, reduce blistering during active outbreak. Best remedy for fever, blisters, and herpes. I was going to say. That's the name of it? If they didn't put herpes in the name, they were totally missing out on some SEO. Because you know when you have the herp. You are Googling that shit. <laughs> I will, uh, I'll take your word on that one. Next day delivery. Exactly. What else you got? Uh, Pashine. <laughs> large 48 slots, colored pencil holder, pencil case, pencil bag, pencil pouch, pencil wrap with a zipper in gray. Can you say the brand name again, please? Pashine. 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 What else you got? Uh, Georgia Pacific Spectrum Standard 92 Multi-Purpose Paper, 8.5 by 11 inches, one box of three packs, 1,500 sheets, 998606. Some about paper. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, these are a lot more amusing if I like pre-screen them, I guess. No, I like them. I like to hear like the regular things that people yeah. are like because we, cause we a... always say like do the shopping you would have done anyway. And like it helps us out. Like this is the shopping people actually do. They need herpes medication and ointment. That's right. <laughs> and you, know what else they, you know what else they need, Rebecca? What? I suspect Kevin might have gotten this one. Dude wipes. <laughs> Flushable wipes. Unscented and naturally soothing dispenser pack. 48 count. Uh, well, let me tell you, if he didn't get them, I think maybe he should. Valentine's Day is coming uh, up. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I just want to thank our listeners who do use our Amazon link at crimewriterson.com. You can just go to our website, right click on the link and bookmark it. And then all that stuff you buy, it goes like a little tiny piece of your purchase goes to support the podcast. It doesn't cost you anything extra. And man, it really does help us out. So thanks for that. And thanks, Toby, for uh, spinning the wheel and picking a few items there. There's a lot of pressure this week. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now, um, I want to talk about something that we got a lot of feedback about in last week's episode. I went on a little bit of a rant about women podcasters and women in audio and how we are often criticized for our speech patterns and our voices and so forth. And of course, then I went on to criticize the woman in a podcast for her <laughs> delivery of the content. But that's a whole other uh, topic of conversation. We got a lot of really nice positive feedback about that portion of our podcast. And mm-hmm. we talked about that. And I just want to read a quick email. I feel like I read a lot of email directed at um, Toby and Kevin. So I'm just going to read a quick email that came in today directed at Laura and I, the ladies <laughs> of Crime Writers On. All right. All right. Toby and I will defend you if it's unfair. Rebecca and Laura, I wanted to thank you both for being intelligent, funny, strong women to look up to. You are both two of my favorite role models. Your appreciation for truth and fighting the man gives me hope. And that was signed <laughs> Chelsea. What do you think about that, Kevin? I'm someone's a role model. Yeah, I I, I think that person needs their head examined. <laughs> I don't agree with that. I think Laura is certainly a role model. Yeah, no, I'm just joshing. Oh. You know, you guys are great. <laughs> joshing? I'm just joshing. I'm just joshing. Rebecca, you put this whole podcast together every week. I mean, that's awesome. I don't know. Well, we also got a thank you note from um, Kevin. You might recognize these names. We got two separate thank you notes from Hillary and Trevor. Do you know who those two people are? I think I do, yeah. They're we, some of our biggest fans. Yes, and the four of us made a surprise six-minute long mini-episode of Crime Writers On for our listener named Hillary who wanted to give her brother Trevor a surprise Christmas gift. That's right. At Patreon, we'll just be your monkeys. We'll do whatever <laughs> you want. There's a level for that. Yeah, she's a really, really loyal listener, and she just sent us a note, and uh, we made them a little like custom episode for Christmas, and they were really, really appreciative of it, and um, I think... I think it came out pretty great. So I just mm-hmm. wanted to give a shout out to Hillary and Trevor. And then Laura, we've been getting a ton of email this week about a podcast that our listeners want to know if we're listening to. And I know you have been. Now, to be clear, this is a podcast that I have seen described as and some of our listeners have, have described as, quote, rough <laughs> so yeah. um, can you just tell us a little bit about the podcast Gone at 21, which I know that you got into a little bit. I listened to it because we had been getting so much feedback on Twitter and I had seen Amber Hunt, one of our friends out in Ohio, had written about it. So I decided to give it a try. And it's really unique because it's basically a private investigator, J. Ryan Green, who was hired to investigate an unsolved murder case of a young woman, Caitlin Markham a 21-year-old college student who vanished in 2011 and 
her remains weren't found until almost two years later, and it's it's still unsolved. So it's unique in that this guy, J. Ryan Green, comes right out of the gate and says, like, I'm not a journalist, I'm not a podcaster. So basically what this is, is I would call it raw audio. It's There's no mixing there's no sound there's it's it's him talking and interviewing people about this case so it's almost like a case file but it is it's definitely rough i mean it's basically just the audio that's kind of spliced together of him interviewing people so far he's interviewing her fiance at the time that she disappeared so you know i, I guess if you want to listen to something that's a little bit different but it is definitely not the type of podcast that i think we've been listening to All right. Sounds like a thumb sideways for our listeners. If you're interested in something rough, check it out. If not, maybe skip it. Sideways seems generous. Yeah, sideways. Well, I mean, this is told from the perspective of a guy who's a private investigator. So if you want some inner workings of what he's doing, I would say give it a listen. And the episodes are short. It has that going for it. Now, Laura, you are a licensed private investigator. Would you ever have thought about documenting your work this way and putting it out for public consumption? Oh, I couldn't have. The work that I was doing had to be confidential. I would have been brought up on like ethical, um, you know, (laughs) you know. And that was the thing I thought was interesting about this is that this is a cold case. Um, and the fact that it's unsolved, I wouldn't call it cold. It's not an old case. And he's basically revealing a lot of information about this case in these interviews. So I would question, you know, I hope this doesn't taint the investigation by releasing all this information out there on a case that I would consider a somewhat recent case. Right. So maybe some ethics issues there as well. All right. Yeah. Well, now our listeners know Ghana 21. We're not going to be talking about it more formally on the podcast. But Laura not just after gave Laura her, says uh, the best thing about it is that it's short. <laughs> Yeah. Well, okay. Well, maybe our listeners can decide for themselves and let us know. How about that? Oh, they'll let us know. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, I want to turn to a quasi-regular segment that we have developed for the show where we talk about things in the real world that have transpired related to other content we've talked about. Kevin, what is that segment called? True Crime Crime Podcast Podcast Update. That was good. A little pause in that one. I didn't know if you wanted the podcast part in there. That's Yeah, a little bit of time for the echo to like resonate between those two words. Great. I think it'll come out great. Well, there has been a new filing in a case related to Serial Season 2. That, of course, was the season all about Bo Bergdahl. And Bo Bergdahl's defense team has put this filing in related to something that we've talked about before on the show. That is Bergdahl's invocation as a frequent talking point on the presidential campaign trail. Now, normally, a little bit of transparency, what I do with true crime podcast updates is I assign someone on the panel to look into it and then give the rest of us the rundown on what happened, what it means, what might happen in the future. But this time I outsourced that because we all know someone who knows a whole lot more about this case and what could happen than we do. So I'm going to play that conversation right now. It's about 10, 15 minutes, and then we'll talk about it afterward. Does that sound good to everyone? Yep. All right. Hola, como esta? Why, Rick? How are you? I am very well. Thank you, Rebecca. It's great to be on. Can you remind our listeners um, how they might know you, a little bit about your creds and all that? Well, I'm a retired Marine lawyer, and I've been on Crime Writers on a number of times. That's my major credential. But I also... (laughs) (laughs) But I also uh, write quite a bit about this, and I have my own podcast, Military Justice, where I talk about military justice. And you were also on the flagship podcast that talked about Serial Season 2 from the military perspective, Task and Purpose. Yeah, Task and Purpose Radio is how I started on all of this, that uh, petite ball of energy known as Lauren Katzenberg. She's the one that got me started in the podcasting game. I've been writing for her. In fact, I just wrote something on the Chelsea Manning pardon that just came out on Task and Purpose today, Hmm. at least the recording today. Yeah. I've been following the Bergdahl case since its inception. You have, and I know that you have been a lawyer pretty much in – almost every different aspect in which you could practice law within the military. So you really understand the system and the law parts and how one would prosecute and defend this pretty much inside out, right? Yes, I've been a defense counsel. I've been a prosecutor, appellate counsel, and I've prosecuted for years down in Gitmo. So I think I have a grasp on this. I'm not saying that. <laughs> I don't want to come out and say, yes, I am the authority on all things military, but uh, I definitely consult my many P 
peers and uh, colleagues. So I think I'm up to speed on the Bergdahl case. Okay, I think that's proof enough. So I know something happened this week with the Bergdahl case. Can you just give me a summary of what it was? Some of us had been thinking that this was going to come out. As Trump was campaigning, he mentions Bergdahl many, many times. Calls him a traitor, a dirty, rotten traitor, uh, which is very too close to my favorite movie, uh, Dirty, Rotten Scoundrels. Um, <laughs> talks about in the good old days, he Bergdahl would have just been shot, that he should be dropped out of a plane without a parachute. And finally, that... If there's no jail time awarded in this case, that President Trump is going to review the case. It's kind of ominous, but I'm not exactly sure what review means. Is that even something that a president can do after if somebody's no. been acquitted? <laughs> <laughs> no, not an acquittal. And it's it's a little bit scary, especially when he says that if there's no jail time awarded. So I mean, d does that mean that he's going to question the jurors, you know, or somehow review them? Right. In the military system, it's it's not like the civilian system where you just have, you know, your your jury might be, you know, a, a secretary, a garbage man, you know, just people that have no real connection to the government. Everybody on a military jury is is subordinate to the president. Right. And this is also America. And there's a thing called double jeopardy, too. So, you know, if he's acquitted, then I don't understand what any kind of review would be. I mean, if, if one of the families decided to sue him for some reason. There could be a civil thing, probably. I don't know that for sure. But um, certainly a presidential review would be unprecedented and likely illegal just in terms of the fact that there's no legal like structure for it, right? It's just all around very odd. I agree with you on that. <laughs> okay. And you can, so um, the Bergdahl's defense team, they filed a motion this last week. I'll get you a copy of that. And they also did, if any of your listeners are interested, they did about a 30-minute montage of candidate Trump going through every you know stop where he called him a traitor, said that five or six people died looking for Bergdahl. So they did a really, a really professional job of that. We can actually play a clip of that now. We get Bergdahl, we get a traitor. We get a no good traitor and we get a traitor named Sergeant Bergdahl trying to get this traitor. And yet we save a Sergeant Bergdahl who's a traitor, a no good traitor. But we fought to get a traitor we have Sergeant Bergdahl, a traitor, right? So we negotiate for Sergeant Bergdahl, a no good traitor. We get Bergdahl, a no good traitor. Sergeant Bergdahl, we get Bergdahl, a traitor, a no good traitor. Sergeant Bergdahl, we get a traitor named Sergeant Bergdahl. Persons captured, they're a hero as far as I'm concerned, unless they're a traitor like Bergdahl. He was captured. He's no he's no hero. So Trump is now president. He said these things on the campaign trail. And this filing is asking for what exactly? Well, the filing is asking for dismissal with prejudice. Right. It's asking, first of all, that there's a finding of unlawful command influence at its base. Apparent unlawful command influence means a well-informed member of the public. The court views it through that person's eyes. Would they feel that the person couldn't get a fair trial. So Bergdahl couldn't get a fair trial given all of the acts in this case. All of the things that Trump said on the campaign trail. Yes. Okay. And part of that, you know, if I'm taking apart that motion, part of that Trump isn't president yet at the time. So there's the UCMJ unlawful command influence might not necessarily apply, but there's still a, a Fifth Amendment due process that we all enjoy. Mm -hmm. The motion by the Bergdahl defense team does a really nice job of going back through some historical cases. They go back through Jefferson talking about Aaron Burr mm -hmm. and President Nixon talking about the Manson murders and President Clinton talking about Theodore Kaczynski, the uh, um, Unabomber, Unabomber, right? Right, right, yeah. yeah with that, I always love his wonderful sketch that could be just about anybody <laughs> yes. with, the, <laughs> with the hoodie and glasses. And you're like, wow, that was, you really nailed it, guys. Very specific. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it all comes down to a reasonable member of the public. Would that person feel that Bergdahl could get a fair trial? Now, I know that that's the standard, but you're also looking at, and this is my question, you're also looking at a jury 
comprising members of the military, right? Right. So those jurors, if they've been paying attention to presidential politics at all, which I assume people in the military pay attention, that might be an assumption, but there's a reason why so many political commercials feature people in the military in the commercials. So I'm assuming that's a somewhat captive audience for presidential politics. Assuming that some or all members of the jury paid attention during the campaign, what you're talking about right now was a candidate at the time, but is now commander in chief, the person who holds the decisions that affect their lives and their work in his hands. Now, how does that come into play versus this what a reasonable member of the public standard would say? I mean, is that in this motion or is that something that you think whoever it is who's deciding on this motion is going to be thinking about as well? That's the second part. I'm actually coming to... I'm coming to the side that there may, in fact, this unlawful command influence may be found in this case. Now, the second part of that is always the remedy. Mm -hmm. Just because something goes wrong in the law doesn't mean the remedy is always going to be dismissal with prejudice. Right. The Bergdahl defense team is asking for dismissal with prejudice, meaning that the charges go away. But you can have lesser forms of the remedy offered by the judge. So you could have maybe a cap on punishment. I could see something like that coming out of this. But I don't think at this point you would see dismissal with prejudice of all the charges. Why not? Why don't you think that we'll see that? It's just an extraordinary well, it kind of comes back to part of the reason that I'm always agitating for reform of the military justice system. You're judges. It's not like a federal judge who's a judge for life. The judge in this case, you know, serves a term as judge, but then just becomes an, another judge advocate, another JAG in the army and is subject to moves and other pressures hmm. that – you know, your your federal court judge isn't under any of that pressure. Right. The federal court judge is there forever uh, until retirement, death, or just no longer wants to play. So, so what you're saying then is that the judge in this case may not be the one to plant a flag in. You did damage to this case, President Trump, so now we have to throw it out. That person, that human being, may not be the one to step up and make that statement. So there might be some other remedy that he could apply that wouldn't necessarily, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, piss off a guy who might tweet about it five minutes later. Or it might piss him off a little bit less, right? you know, if it's not dismissal with prejudice. And I'm not taking any issue with the individual judge in this case. I'm just saying we understand it's in our Constitution. We understand human frailties. That's why our federal judges, Article 3 federal judges, enjoy lifetime tenure because they, we know that other people might get upset by their rulings and we want to have an institutional block from anybody doing anything to them. Well, I just want to pivot for a minute. You mentioned a couple minutes ago that you wrote about the Chelsea Manning commutation by President Obama before he left office for task and purpose. And I'm curious as to how people in the military community feel about that commutation. I know that there's, you know, the facts, which are that Chelsea got a longer sentence than anybody convicted of a an equivalent crime. I know that, you know, there's a lot of habeas corpus issues. And I know, I know there are also just like a lot of stress issues with Chelsea being in this all male facility where she's being held. And I think there were a lot of factors that played into that commutation. And I think there was also the factor that public opinion perhaps has swayed toward some of the much maligned whistleblowers during the Obama administration. I think that the public generally sees Snowden differently, sees Manning differently. But most of us in the public are not in the military. We don't think about things like what a leak could mean in our day-to-day lives. And I'm wondering, you know, what is the community of military people saying, thinking? I know it's not just one opinion, but what have you heard? I'll tell you what troubles me about this is that I've heard a lot of people, military and other commentators, former military commentators, being just outraged by the commuting Manning's sentence. But on the same day, President Obama pardoned General Cartwright. General Cartwright was the general officer who pled guilty, a retired general, who pled guilty to leaking information about the Sextet virus. That was the virus that allegedly the U.S. and Israel used to shut down um, Iran's nuclear program. Mm -hmm. 
and the general had, had already pled guilty. He hadn't been sentenced yet, but he was completely pardoned. So a lot of this outrage about how good order and discipline and and the military has been undermined by President Obama's actions in the Manning case, they're very silent about the same action in Cartwright's case. Mm -hmm. So it's unfortunate, but it kind of leads me to think that there's some other issues at hand, you know, maybe that, you know, Manning has, has been transitioning. Yep. And it's a lot easier to pick on the little guy or right. the, excuse me, you know, the, the little person, junior in rank. And I, I find that pretty disturbing. Hmm. What other things are you looking out for now that President Trump has taken office? I know that you've talked about on your podcast, General Mattis, but what other things are coming down the pike that you sort of are keeping an eye on that Trump may or may not do with regard to the military in his first days in office? Rebecca, I will tell you this. There's nothing that I can't imagine that might happen. <laughs> so I'm, I, I am scanning the horizon right to left, up and down, because it's, you know, I tried it in my, in my case, I try to focus really on the military justice system as it exists from administration to administration, you know, so I'm not as, as political, but just so many, so many odd things occurred during this last presidential run. It's hard to know exactly what will happen. I mean, we've just seen the tweeting that, you know, recognizes different governments that historically we hadn't recognized. There's a lot on the horizon and we'll see how, especially these cabinet appointments you had, as we mentioned, General uh, Mattis, General Kelly with Homeland Security. We'll see how they can provide what we'd call left and right lateral limits, see if they can kind of box in the president on, on some of these things. But um, I guarantee that I will be vocal when I see issues and I'll, I'll be sure to ping you at Crime Writers On. <laughs> well, if any of them can fit into one of our true crime update segments, you be sure to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I will. And I do have one small war story for you. I was um, about 2011 or 12, yeah, about 2011, I was flying down to Guantanamo Bay out of the D.C. area, and I was talking to the pilots. It was a very small Army aircraft, you know, like a five-seater. And just the day before, they had flown Manning from Quantico in the northern Virginia area to the disciplinary barracks back in Kansas. Mm -hmm. And they said, like you had mentioned before, there's so many problems and, and suicide watch and, you know, you know, transitioning that they said that the Marines were more than happy to hand off Manning and <laughs> that they said, OK, sign, you're signing right now. We're out of here. That's your responsibility now. And wow. I think, like you said, that that's part of I think that that was part of the president's decision making in in issuing that commutation. And seven years is still that's a stretch in the old pokey. Yeah, I would not want to do that. Wyrick, I can't thank you enough for coming on and explaining the latest in the Bergdahl case to us, giving us your very, very educated opinion, <laughs> unlike ours, <laughs> and uh, filling us in also on the Manning case. It's been wonderful connecting with you. It's been great. And I just, I will require some moose meat as payment for this. <laughs> so I think one of your crime writers can hook me up with some extra moose meat. We'll send you Harry's razor. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Rebecca. <laughs> So you can go to our website, crimewriterson.com, to get a link to that motion filed in the Bo Bergdahl case if you want to learn more. We'll also post a link to that video compilation of everything that Donald Trump said about Bergdahl while on the campaign trail that was submitted with that motion. So, Toby, I've got a question for you. The last time you were on a military plane going to Gitmo, what did you and the pilot talk about? <laughs> Uh, we talked about Chelsea Manning. <laughs> you didn't talk about LeBron James. <laughs> that that was that was before. Trial? Well, I'm curious to know, Toby. Like, what are your thoughts about what Wyrick had to say in terms of the fact that the President of the United States now says he's going to be reviewing a case if it doesn't turn out the way he wanted it to turn out, at least according to his campaign rhetoric. What do you think about that? Do you think that Wyrick's right, that the judge just might not want to go there and subject all of these jurors and himself to that kind of scrutiny? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I just don't. It's it's also very weird. And I totally defer to Wyrick 
in his knowledge on this stuff, you know, without getting into like political leanings and stuff, Trump is is so willing to talk in very blunt terms about things that presidents in the past have not been that, you know, I think he creates some unprecedented situations and this is one of them. Now, Laura, my question for you is, you know, we talked about that when Trump said all this stuff, he wasn't yet the president. He was in the campaign trail. And now he's the president and now he's the commander in chief. Can you imagine in a regular defense case, an emotion like this, you know, let's say somebody you know didn't have any influence when they made a prejudicial statement or said something that could have damaged defense. And then they were in a position later to actually have influence and do something about the thing that they had said that was, you know, bad for the client. I mean, do you think like in a civilian court situation, does it make a difference that he wasn't president at the time and that he is now? I think it would make a difference in a civilian court. I think if the person wasn't recused from being involved in the case in whatever influential way they were trying to be involved, it would be a huge appeal issue. You know, it's it's just crazy to me. I don't want to get too much into it, but I don't think that something like this would fly in the regular court system. It's unfortunate the way that it's playing out in the military justice system, you know, and I just, I wish he'd gotten that pardon. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because we did just talk about that Chelsea Manning commutation. So, Laura, you were hoping that Obama would pardon Bergdahl. You know, and I would say specifically because of this, because I don't think that he is going to get a fair trial because of the current climate in this country and because of this, you know, very prejudicial statements that have been made by the president and the sort of suggestion that if things don't turn out the way that the president wants them, then the case is going to be gone over with a fine tooth comb and the people that made these decisions are going to be called into question. So that's why I wish this had been dealt with before, because I just think there's no good answer at this point for Bo Bergdahl. What do you think, Kevin? Should Obama have pardoned Bergdahl? It would have been the cleanest way to take care of it. And I also agree with Laura that, you know, because there already seems to be this pattern of undue command influence that it's very possible that Bergdahl will not get a fair shake. And I I am very chilled by the idea of a, a review. If the president says that he would order a review, and I think Wyatt mentioned that it isn't clear whether or not that means that he would seek to try Bergdahl a second time, which I don't think he can, or whether that means that there would be an investigation or a questioning of the judge and the prosecutors and the jurors about why they went the way that they did. It's different in the examples that he gave about Jefferson and Nixon and Clinton talking about criminal cases because the judges are in the judiciary and they're in the executive branch. But in this case, it's true. The president now is obviously the head of the executive branch and the commander in chief and all those people are subordinate to him. Was it different when he was just a candidate? Maybe. But I think that's a legal argument uh, that has to be hashed out in military court. So I guess we have no idea what's going to happen and we'll just have to see. Yeah. And the best thing to see is like your wife coming into the room with a brand new hair color. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that was funny. Surprise. You know that over 100 million women color their hair each year? 100 million seems like a lot. Yeah. Well, you do that. I do. You are totally Becky with the good hair. True. And I tweeted photographs of you with your new hair color from Madison Reed. My old new hair color from Madison Reed. I'm just maintaining, Kevin. I'm not going like blonde or anything. That's true, but you could because (laughs) Madison Reed has all sorts of different pigments that you can choose from. And they are the first ever hair color free of all sorts of yucky stuff like ammonia and parabens, parabens, gluten, and I don't even want to Resource go... and all? Yeah, I mean, I think those are things like you would use to embalm a cat or something. Can I something. just say practically what that means? No. What it means practically... I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, yes, you can. Thank you. <laughs> what it means practically for anybody who's ever colored their own hair or like been to a salon and have their hair had their hair colored is that like after you're done, and this is me talking, I am actually talking about my own hair. It doesn't feel like you've colored your hair. Your hair actually feels better 
after you color it with this Madison Reed hair coloring. It's softer. It's shinier. It doesn't make a mess in your bathroom that's like impossible to clean up because it leaves like permanent stains everywhere. It doesn't feel fried from chemicals. It feels like you've had a a natural shampoo and conditioner in your But the color is really good and it lasts and it doesn't take any longer than regular hair color takes. So I don't know how it works, but it's it's pretty great. I love it. Is this the one with argon oil? (laughs) Uh, I think so. Toby. (laughs) So remember, if you're looking for gorgeous hair color made with ingredients with integrity, go to madison-reed.com and take their easy color quiz to find your perfect shade. Get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit using promo code WRITERS. That's madison-reed.com and promo code WRITERS. 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 <laughs> You're going to love it. Satisfaction and compliments guaranteed. You know, I did get an email a couple weeks ago saying how annoying it was that I say the promo code at the same time you say it. Now, what's your response? You remember the promo you code. You remember the promo you? code. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for joining me in that, Toby. I really appreciate it. No problem. Madison Reed. Madison-Reed.com. Use the promo code. Writers. Writers. Yes. Right. You won't regret it. Your hair will be gorgeous and soft. And your bathroom will be nice and clean. My gosh, yeah. It can be a real mess. <laughs> it cleans your bathroom? No, it just doesn't make the... Well, I don't know. I don't, I don't if understand. If you're washing your hair with one of the products that has lots and lots of chemicals, and then you do like the TV commercial thing where you fling your you hair back, it's like splashing a, a paintbrush or maybe blood splatter from a you know knife wound. It's like all over the ceiling and the walls, and then it's hard to get off. Henry Lee has to come in and look. Yeah, you can't just like, <laughs> you know, soap it off. It doesn't Sometimes happen with stained. a medicine, right? It doesn't happen. Like the, the tub isn't stained. Tub isn't stained. And my hair is super soft. So anyway. And you don't get that. You probably don't get that little line around the top of your forehead no. where the hair color is but for it like comes a couple with, days. Right, and, but the box comes with like a little cream that you put on to keep the color from getting on your face and it comes with these nice little wipes to like any color that does get on your face you can like wipe off but honestly you don't even need it because the color doesn't have any chemicals so it doesn't stick to your face anyway it's incredible I don't know how they this do this has it. become kind of a segment I'm sorry I don't mean it to yeah. be because it is a commercial but if fun. you're looking for gorgeous hair color made with ingredients <laughs> with integrity go to madison-reed.com and take their easy color quiz and find your perfect shade get 10% off plus free shipping with your first <laughs> color kit using promo code writers that's madison-reed.com and promo code writers all right you're gonna love it satisfaction and compliments guaranteed all right can we move on now of course yeah kevin i wish you wouldn't make the commercial so damn long (laughs) so now i want to talk about a very famous case and recommend or not to our listeners that they watch a film that was made about it the documentary is called the witness and for our listeners who are interested in seeing it after hearing our review you can get the film two ways it's currently streaming on netflix and it's also available on demand as part of pbs's independent lens series so if you want to watch it that way you can get it by searching for independent lens on your on-demand menu or you can go to the independent lens website which has the full film up for viewing But yeah, Netflix is a lot easier. So if you have Netflix, I would just recommend going to Netflix and searching for The Witness. So first, most people know about the case at the heart of this documentary. It's the 1964 murder of Kitty Genovese. And if that name isn't familiar to you, the story probably is. Genovese was a bar waitress in Kew Gardens, Queens. She was randomly stabbed by a stranger named Winston Mosley, who later told police he was just looking for a woman to kill. He then raped and robbed her after he returned to finish the job after walking away from her at one point. The detail that you've likely heard comes from the New York Times, which reported that 38 witnesses heard and saw some part of the attack, but didn't call the police and failed to intervene. Like a few hallmark true crime tales, Kitty Genovese's murder became tied with some ideas we've all come to believe that people in cities don't care about each other and something called the so-called bystander effect. And as the movie shows in this montage, this is a story that has become really popular in pop culture. Did they say why they just sat there doing nothing while that girl screamed for help? They all had the same answer. They didn't want to get involved. A young woman stabbed 14 times and raped outside her building. While 40 of her neighbors turned up their TVs so they couldn't hear the screams. If you're a witness in one of these things, you know what you got to do? Put on a shirt and tie, you got to go down a court. So because of a little inconvenience, you don't want to get involved. Listen, let me explain something to you, huh? Shut up! (laughs) 
This documentary, The Witness, does its best to turn what we think we know about Kitty Genovese's story on its head. So true crime fans, should you watch The Witness? Let's talk about it and then you can decide. So the first thing I want to talk about is the protagonist in this documentary, Bill Genovese. Kitty Genovese's brother. Now, she has a lot of brothers, and they're all in the documentary. Kevin, can you just, like, tell us a little bit about Bill? Yeah, Bill seems to be in his uh, late 50s. Yeah, well, you know, it's, inter- it's interesting because it looks like the first part, the, the, the filming began in 2004. They're making this for, like, 10 or yeah, 12 years. Yeah, because they talk about the 40th anniversary and then the 50th anniversary of the of the 1964 crime. Um, so it's been in production for a while. Bill is a Vietnam vet. And he lost both of his legs while fighting in country. And so he gets around in a wheelchair. But he is also pretty uh, dogged in his determination to find out more about what happened to his sister. Surprisingly, most people knew more about the Kitty Genovese case than the family did because they didn't look into it. They were sort of shielded from it and didn't want to dig into it until Bill decides that he's going to try to investigate the central part of what we know about the crime, or what we think we know about the crime, that there were 38 people who saw the murder and the attack taking place. And did nothing. And did nothing. So, Laura, what do you think about Bill when we first meet Bill and his pursuit of the truth here? You know, as I'm watching this in the beginning, I didn't realize that he had such serious physical limitations. And all of a sudden I'm watching him like going upstairs with his arms. It was pretty amazing. I mean, he's obviously a very determined person and he's a very independent person. You can see, Uh, you know, a few times people try to help him and he's like, nope. But it's interesting because he basically, you know, as you're, you're watching this, his entire life seems to have been shaped by this event that happened while he was a young man in terms of the decisions that he made after that, that even the decision to go to Vietnam was because he didn't want to be like the people that he perceived didn't step up to help out when his sister needed help. So he was going to step up and help out. What was interesting to me, though, is that, you know, a lot of times, and we've heard this as, you know, true crime writers, you see families that don't want to go back into cases because they don't want to dredge it up again. So it was interesting to see somebody that actually wanted to go back. And, And really, I think, put this to rest because he he was starting to have questions about the direction his life had taken based on what he perceived to be the truth in the case, which may not have actually been the truth. Toby, I want to ask you a narrative question, because when we first started watching this documentary, it seemed like it was just very, very personal, like Bill's story, right? Right. And I think it sort of unfolds in a logarithmically, like accelerated pace where it sort of becomes more and more and more involved, like to a like a greater degree as as time passes in the in the film. It does start with this very, very personal story. And then it, it kind of turns into like a real true crime investigation, like in the middle, especially he talks to a ton of people, witnesses. He talks to the perp's son. He sort of is really doing like a lot of legwork and we're getting all this detail. What did you think of the narrative structure and the pace of this film in general? I was thinking about you a lot as I was watching it. They made an interesting, I think, good choice to establish him and they actually hold back on giving you the the story behind him being in Vietnam. You just right. know that he's a double amputee. They, they hold back on it until like three quarters of the way through. Right. And we, we just right. accept that he has no legs. And then suddenly which we I get the is, story. Yeah. Which I think is, I think is good because you have to, you kind of take it for what it's worth. You know, you, you don't know the backstory. You don't know how it happened or why he got himself in a position where that happened. So they, they sort of establish him as he is now, he comes across as a very, very decent guy who is obsessed with finding out the truth behind this. And in the pursuit of it, you know, it seems fairly clear that there are members of his family who don't want him to do this. And it is bringing up things that they would rather not have brought up. And they also, they do a pretty interesting thing where they spend a decent amount of time bringing out Kitty Genovese and what her character was. And and they talked to some people who are friends of hers. And you, you find out some things about her. And spoiler alert, one of the things is she was gay at the time, which people sort of hearteningly, it's just one of the things about her, in addition to her being sort of vivacious and, and extremely popular, but also with you know, she's involved in some seedy things. So they do a good job of setting up like the two main personalities. And then once they're done with that, they kind of go into 
the investigation aspect of things. And then at the very end, you have this sort of strange, cathartic moment. <laughs> yeah, that was very strange. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it's very strange. The thing that kind of redeems it, I think, is that you see how affecting it is for him. Mm-hmm. Like he sets this whole thing up and you do get a chance to see him and how he's dealing with this. And it's not a choice I would necessarily make. But by watching him, it makes a little more sense. It kind of comes full circle. It starts personal and it ends personal. Even if it's yeah. strange, it's it's personal. Kevin, that exposition about Kitty Genovese herself, we saw old footage of her. We saw high school photos of her. We had a lot of exposition. Now, I had heard that she was gay. I had heard that she was a bartender, a barmaid, as they used to call it. And I knew that she was murdered by somebody and that 38 people watched and didn't do anything. That was the extent of my knowledge. We saw this fuller picture of someone who basically looks like Audrey Hepburn, by the way, and her family. And she has a lot of extended family now because her brothers have all had a lot of kids and a lot of them look just like her. What did you think of this personal portrait of this victim who's basically become a metaphor for something in our popular culture? I liked getting to know Kitty. And I think in some ways, uh, Bill was getting to know Kitty, too, because he was young when he was young. And she right. He said, you know, he saw her on weekend. She uh, still liked to live in the city. And I think maybe because she had an affinity for the city, maybe because she was living a very alternative lifestyle for, for that for 1964, yeah. that she felt more comfortable there than in the Connecticut suburbs. I think what really sold it for me is is that they had home movies of her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to see her kind of swagger, you know, she had this devilish smile and you definitely could see like the people with her, you know, were hanging on her shoulders because they wanted to be around her. You know, it gives a different view than just sort of the victim who was caught in a crime and suffered on on top of suffering. That's what I really, really liked. That to me was the heart of the documentary in terms of that part of it. I mean, there's another heart that we'll talk about in a minute, but Kitty Genovese as a character, usually we do see in true crime stuff, our books included, I'm going to throw us under the bus here, a portrait of a victim that is all about making the audience care about the victim. And it often feels a little bit flat, like... This is someone who was much beloved, and you like list all the great things they were doing. <laughs> Kitty Genovese worked in a bar, and one of her high school friends was like, I thought, what a waste, you know, that she's like working in a bar. She could have done anything. And then you meet the guys in the bar. <laughs> yeah, the guys in the bar were great. <laughs> and they talked about how she would lend the money. Or like one of them, like, she went to the hospital with me when my wife was in labor with our kid. And it was such a complete picture of a human being, like warts and all that she didn't have to be perfect for me to realize that it was like a tremendous tragedy, you know, what ended up happening to her. I want to ask you guys a quick question about how they did the narrative, the exposition in the documentary, because it was really unusual. What did you think of how they used illustrations to move along the narrative during some of the monologues that Bill would have when he was telling part of the story? I liked it. And I also liked how they used, they kind of had the old pictures when they were talking about things that happened and where things were, and they would draw kind of over the old pictures to kind of illustrate thing that was I thought very effective in kind of helping you understand what was happening but the the actual weird the little animations they reminded me of something from like the 70s yeah Um, didn't it yeah it definitely was like a throwback I liked it because you know when you think about any kind of documentary and you have that voiceover you have to cover it with some kind of video and it could either be an actor well, yeah, it could. We could we could take photographs of the photograph yeah. <laughs> uh, over and over again, or it'll be a bunch of you know drone shots flying over the junkyard, making a murder or reenactments, a reenactment, like the jinx. Yes, exactly. And this was one way of doing it, which I thought was both and pardon the pun, but I think it illustrated very well all of the action and all of the emotion that each of those voiceovers trying to convey they they definitely showed you know the idea of where somebody walked and and the distance from windows the best one was probably the one with kitty's lover when they're talking about her life they have no video just the audio and so they used this illustrative form to visually activate her life I like that choice. Now I want to get to what I think the documentary means to be about 
don't trust what you read. <laughs> it's kind of what it's building toward the whole time. Bill is looking into this claim that was basically established by a New York Times story, which gave this number, 38 witnesses. At one point, he talks to a retired reporter for an old defunct newspaper called the New York Herald Tribune, who tells Bill that when he confronted the original Times reporter about some possible inconsistencies with that 38 number and all these witnesses not doing anything, he was told, let it go. It's a compelling story. Why are you trying to ruin it? It's um, a Liberty Valance thing. If the legend is better than the story, print the legend. Never let the truth get in the way of a good yeah. story. And then later we hear from the New York Times City editor, A.M. Rosenthal, who has since passed away, that uh, he later wrote a book about the case called 38 Witnesses. He seems to think his coverage was worth it, that it was good, it did a service, because the 911 emergency response system was established you know, as a result of the Kitty Genovese case. Laura, the New York Times is sort of like the venerable paper of record for a lot of the great things that have happened with truth and journalism in the 20th century. What did you think when they were able to shine such a spotlight on basically what I guess would be called in this era the fake news of these 38 apathetic oh. witnesses? Oh, don't use the word fake news. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, this was just really interesting to me because I was like, is this just a generational thing? Because at that time, nobody questioned what the New York Times wrote because they were the New York Times. Even Mike Wallace, who, you know, we all know from 60 Minutes, who was a radio reporter at the time, he admits he didn't even check the account when he did a story on it because he knew the reporter that wrote it for the New York Times and he just assumed it was all accurate. But what was interesting is how that one account went on you know, it led to like studies in, you know, psychology about people and this bystander effect. And there's been college courses about it. And all of this was based on something that wasn't completely accurate. You know, I guess different time and place, but it was um, really interesting to see the sort of deference that these other media outlets showed the New York Times such that they just accepted everything that they said at face value. Toby, what did you think of the journalism portion of the documentary and how they sort of laid out the case that the Times got it wrong and that was real bad? Yeah, I think what I found that I was thinking about a lot was sort of two things. It was like, why did this guy write the article that way? You know, if you get beyond the like, he thought it would sell more papers. And then the other part of it was, why did that so capture the imagination and why were people willing to take something that on its face would just seem so counterintuitive that not one out of 38 people would be willing to like pick up a phone? What was kind of tapped into there? Well, Toby, you if, know, if I may, Toby, I mean, I think yeah. you answered your own question there about why was this a story? Because it was interesting and unusual and it was something that people did not know or think of before. Now, there was a lot of fiction sewn into it, but because it's unusual, and I think also in the documentary, they sort of explain what was going on in the city at the time that there was this idea that the city wasn't safe, which is why people were fleeing for the suburbs. You know, White there, flight that, was going there were dem on. I was just going to say there's demographic changes. It spoke to the idea that how horrible are we? And it made people question whether or not they w would do the same. Would they pick up the phone and call if they saw something? But, you know, it comes down to the fact that 38 people didn't see her getting attacked. Several people heard screams. Several people misunderstood that to be a fight and not a murder rape. And there were people that called. And there certainly was somebody that went and tried to help. There were also at least one guy at the top of the stairs. I think his name was Ross who opened the door and saw Kitty bleeding at the bottom of the stairs and Winston Mosley, you know, standing over her and closed the door. So there is a little bit of truth to that, but it was seemed so unusual that that's what made it newsworthy and that's what gave it legs. I, I just want to, and I, I could be completely off on this, but I wonder if it's still World War II residue in terms of are people willing to let bad things happen and do nothing? Mm -hmm. I don't know when Hannah Arendt's, you know, Eichmann in Jerusalem, the banality of evil, all that stuff came out. But it, it was a time when at least some people were thinking about how did the rise of Adolf Hitler happen? How did the Holocaust occur when good people do nothing? Mm -hmm. You know, and I think 
that that might have been part of what made it so affecting to people. It's not exactly analogous, but in a situation where people could have made a step to prevent something terrible from happening, zero out of 38 people in this instance did, according to that article, obviously. One of the things that happens just sort of moving along to Bill and his like investigative pursuits is he talks to a ton of people. He talks to neighbors. He talks to, you know, Kitty Genovese's friends. He talks to people who prosecutors say and prosecutors. Defense attorneys. He talks to people who say that they called the police and the police said we've already been called. So we're, they just hung up on them. You know, he talks to the woman who says that Kitty Genovese like died in her arms, basically. He also makes a good faith effort to get in touch with the man who murdered his sister. And there's a very interesting part of the documentary where we learn more about that man his frightening criminal past. And he doesn't end up talking to Winston Mosley, but he does end up talking to his son, seemed to be either willfully or unwillfully ignorant of his father's actual record and what he actually, the crimes he actually Well, everybody was, yeah. including Bill Genovese. Well, that's the question I wanted to ask you, Laura. This whole thing where families have no idea what happened to their family members, mm-hmm. what's up with that? <laughs> you mean at that at that time period yes. or just in general? Just, yeah. Well, that's, you know, I, that was something that did strike me as I was watching this because I was I was like, geez, you know, now in the court system, we have so much information. And if there's a, you know, murder victim's family, they're going to be meeting with the victim witness advocate or people from the prosecutor's office. They're going to be preparing them for anything they may hear in court. They're going to hear all these details in court. And it almost sounded like at this time that the family was sort of separate from the court proceedings in that they really didn't know anything about the case. So I didn't know if it was a generational thing or, you know, what compared to now, it seemed like they were really in the dark. All right. So overall, Toby, I'm going to ask you to weigh in first. Do you think that our listeners should take 90 minutes of their lives and watch this documentary, The Witness, available on Netflix or on PBS's Independent Lens? What do you think? Yeah, I think yes. I mean, I, to be quite honest, was not really in the mood for this kind of thing when I watched it yesterday. And it very quickly drew me in and I thought it was very strong. What do you think, Laura? Should our listeners watch The Witness? And if so, why? Yeah, I definitely I would watch it. It's because it's not your traditional like what you would think of as a straightforward true crime documentary. There's a lot going on. And I think there's kind of a bigger question that is kind of at play in the whole story about, you know, how your memory sort of shapes your perception of things and how based on that, then, you know, certain things become facts or narratives that you fit to what you remember or what you perceive. So it's it, there's some other questions at play that make it very interesting. And I love all the old um, footage that they have, all the old um, home movies of Kitty. I do, too. I would give it a thumbs up, I would say, for our listeners interested in watching a really great true crime thing. That's a one sit down piece of content. There's a lot going on in this documentary that I think you will find really interesting. And it covers a lot of the bases we talk about in this podcast. It talks about journalism. It talks about pop culture. It talks about a really interesting case that we think we all know. So I give it a yes. Kevin, what about you? Yeah, I also give it a yes. I think you should take some time and watch it because it is a case that we think we know about, but we really don't. It's interesting to watch Bill tear it apart. Not tear it apart. That It's interesting to watch Bill peel back the layers and find something different each time. He's a sympathetic protagonist to watch him go through this and sort of come to terms. And I will say, you know, the last scene, it's very controversial. I don't know whether or not that belongs. I'm torn. But you have to admit, it's the kind of thing I think that the viewer ultimately wants to experience. So I'm a yes. All right. I think that we all agree. Uh, It's worth your time. Watch The Witness, the documentary. Get it on Netflix. It's a lot easier than the other way. But you can also get it on PBS Independent Lens. It's time to move on to my favorite part of this podcast, a little something I like to call the the crime crime of of the the week. week. As we already discussed, some people got pardons and commutations from the outgoing President Obama and some did not. At least one of them, though, really, really wanted to plead his case. Marcus Sanford Patman of Miami served time as an art thief. He stole a Picasso and a Chagall in 2009, worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. He said he graduated from petty crime to art theft because... He wanted a fancier lifestyle. (laughs) So did his lawyer. It's a good reason, as any. (laughs) Padmon was hoping he'd get a pardon for these crimes, so he decided he would go to Washington before the new administration took over and plead his case. 
Only two problems with his plan. One is that he was planning to go to speak to Attorney General Eric Holder, who left that job two years ago. Dope. And the bigger problem was that he stole a car to make the 1,000-mile trip to the Capitol. Oh. <laughs> so instead of getting a presidential pardon, Patman is now behind bars once again facing a felony charge. Okay, panel. Toby, I'll start with you. If you were president, how would you have responded to this felon's pardon request? You know, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can have a pardon. (laughs) I'm out of here. Senioritis. (laughs) Yes. You know, he showed some he showed some pluck. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Laura? How would you have responded to this particular pardon request if you were the outgoing president of the United States? I want to know what kind of car he stole to get there, first of all, Mm -hmm. if it fit his fancier lifestyle. I think it was a VW. New oh, or really? Was it one of those yeah. diesel ones with a bad engine no, situation? Kirby <laughs> <laughs> the love bug? I don't know. I think this guy, I actually looked this guy up because I was curious about him. And, I, you know, I don't think he's the brightest bulb out there. Um, there was a big story about how he had screwed up uh, an art heist when he stole some Picassos in Miami. And uh, I think he needed all the help he could get. So I, I think I would have given him a break. But I maybe would have taken a picture if he had some available. So I have a question. Like, why did he need a pardon if he was not in prison anymore? for this crime <laughs> well a pardon he wants to start new it expunges <laughs> oh, okay your, your record completely I don't so know. yeah so that means that he, he probably can't as a felon he probably can't vote i would have I, maybe carry a firearm and other things like that I, I think i agree with laura i would have given him some style points and maybe been like sure whatever if he had like an el camino perhaps <laughs> uh, but if he came up like in a toyota corolla no freaking way this guy's not getting a pardon what about you kevin <laughs> Uh, I would have pardoned him for the art theft, but I would have opened up an investigation into (laughs) whether or not he got jail time for the car theft. (laughs) All right. It sounds like uh, you have something in common with our new president of the United States, perhaps, in the way you would have handled this. Probably. (laughs) All right. We should probably wrap it up on that note. But before we do, Laura Bricker, very important question for you. Is there a cat of the week that you'd like to share with us? There is. There is. (gasps) Time for the cat of the week. (laughs) This week, it is Airy, age 17, also known as Air Bear. Um, (laughs) But Air Bear has been having some health problems, according to her aunt Alicia. So we're sending Air Bear some well wishes for a speedy recovery. And hopefully she doesn't have cat herpes or something like that. Oh, wow. Uh, Laura, didn't we get a submission for a cat of the week that was recently deceased? (laughs) No, that was last week's cat who did die. This this cat is on the brink of death. So we're hoping to bring Air Bear back to life. Can we get some healthy cats Um, next time, too? (laughs) This segment is starting really maudlin. It was started really fun. (laughs) Well, this lady sent the Alicia sent this long email about the cat so I you know I felt like I had to put some effort into kind of you know sending good vibes this cat's way all right (laughs) good vibes Alicia thank you good vibes good vibes you're still allergic to cats though right I still am allergic to cats. all right so Laura Bricker if our listeners want to follow you online perhaps send you a note how can they find you on Twitter at Laura Bricker and Toby Ball if our listeners would like to communicate with you about your laissez-faire style of pardoning people as president of the United States how can they reach you at Badlands National Park (laughs) (laughs) You rebel, you. Kevin Flynn, how can our listeners follow you online? I'm still at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to tweet to me or follow me on Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. Our show is also on Twitter at CrimeWritersOn. And you can always send us an email at CrimeWritersOn at gmail.com. Don't forget to head over to our website where you can sign up for our newsletter and buy stuff using our Amazon link. Regular stuff like paper and dog food. Before you close your podcast app, please leave us an iTunes review. It makes a difference. And check out These Are Their Stories, the Law and Order podcast. Our handsome line producer is Henry Lavoie. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. This show was recorded in Square Egg Studio at Partners in Crime Media, a.k.a. the closet in our basement, formerly known as Studio C. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. 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 You know what was right. weird about that documentary? What? Is that in my second book, I have a character, like a main character, whose name is Winston Moses. Mm. Oh, close. That's kind of throwing me off. Damn wow. it, Toby. That was your George Harrison moment. You plagiarized because it was like in <laughs> your subconscious. Lord. Yeah, that probably was it. What did he plagiarize? My Sweet Lord. 
From what? He's so fine. Oh, really? He's yeah. A, it was unintent. It was an unintentional. It came from a dream, but he dream. but he still had to like give back all the money. It's, yeah. it's kind yeah. of like Ed Sheridan uh, ripping off uh, uh, Tom Petty. <laughs> Stay with me. All right. Goodbye. I won't <laughs> oh, back God. down. Led Zeppelin in spirit. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I think yeah. I think that was a straight up plagiarism. Am I? I don't really yeah, hear. that was almost like I don't note hear it. for note. That was my opinion. You don't hear I, it. I don't hear it. You're to- he doesn't hear it. I don't hear it. It's almost note for oh note. Oh my god. I don't hear it. Someday I will play for you like the beginning of one of those, and you'll have to identify which one it like is. Like the Pepsi challenge. <laughs> yes. You don't hear it. I don't know. Oh, I heard. Oh, I heard. Oh, the, Kevin. The, that's I, the crime. It's literally the same. No, it's not literally the same. Uh, Toby, I, it is I, not literally I am the sa- barely misusing the word literally right now. You're, yeah, you're not. You're not quite using it correctly, but it's not that bad. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, the first time I listened to it, I was like, you know, because like the whole thing with the verb, I was like. Really? I don't really hear it's, that. It's, it's, I don't hear that. I don't, I don't hear that one. Yeah. And then I started playing this. I was like, holy shit. It's, it's the, the beginning of Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> it sounds like a high school student who doesn't quite have the chords right, but is playing Stairway to Heaven. Right. It's like some YouTube kid. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> All right. Talk to you guys Cheerio. later. Bye. 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 Adios. Bye, guys. Partners in Crime Media. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.